This episode is sponsored by Indigo Ag, which enables companies to attain their sustainability goals by incentivizing farmers to be climate heroes. Carbon by Indigo addresses climate change while supporting farmers and communities. Learn more at indigoag.com forward slash green biz. From Green Biz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Heather Clancy, filling in from Northern New Jersey for the vacationing Joel McCower. On this week's edition, why the U.S. needs to get on track with high-speed rail, a proposal for sustainable-grade ESG investments, and a new scorecard from As You Sow rates S&P 500 companies on their environmental justice initiatives. We're increasing our scrutiny this week on GreenBiz 350. It's August 27th, 2021. Welcome to another edition of Green Biz 350. Joining me today as co-host is senior editor Deanna Anderson, patching in from El Cerrito, California. Hello, Deanna. Hey, Heather. It feels like I haven't been on the podcast in so long. Yeah, I've missed you. I've missed you. I, I, I miss talking to you on this format, and I'm excited to hear what you have about the stories uh, that we're going to talk about in a moment. Um, I actually have to share something fun from my garden. We hatch uh, the, the mantis, the praying mantises every spring. We, uh, you know, take, I don't know if you've seen them, but you can buy these little containers in the garden store, and they, they have an egg in them, and then you get dozens usually of these little tiny praying mantises um, when they finally hatch. And uh, this morning I went outside and uh, we, we let the little guys go, I don't know, a couple months ago they hatched and there's boom, was a big one <laughs> on one of my begonia plants. I was like, whoa, and I just totally saw it out of the corner of my eye, kind of moved in that way that they do and looked at me. Wow. <laughs> I know, isn't that fun? I'm just so excited because <laughs> they're so, you know, hard. I, I see, see them so rarely and I love them. They're just crazy looking. So yeah, I feel like every time I see a praying mantis, it's very random. I didn't realize that you could buy and hatch them. Yeah, it's, it's wonderful. And we do it because we, you know, we try to not put pesticides out and they, mm-hmm. they're great at keeping the control of the uh, other insects. I, you, are you experimenting? You have a little bit of space there that yes. you can play? Yeah. What do you grow on? I am. So um, the tenant who was in my apartment before me left behind like a, uh, I don't even know what it's called. I guess it's a box planter. Uh-huh. Um, and I decided that I'm going to grow some carrots, <laughs> onions, and maybe one other thing, because I think I have space for one other <laughs> vegetable. Mm-hmm. I'm super excited. I realized how hard gardening is this past weekend um, from just trying to get the soil back up to par. Yeah, I had a, I put in some echinacea uh, this past weekend and <laughs> I was really sore the next day because I had to dig. We have lots of clay and rocks in our soil. So anyway, I'd love to keep talking about gardening and I want to hear what that other vegetable will be in the future, but I guess we probably really should talk about the week in review. (laughs) 
So I'll get us started with a piece by our wonderful contributor, Marilyn Waite. She is uh, an editor at large with Green Biz and has written about a lot of different topics, um, often about startups that are uh, founded by people of color, indigenous individuals, and so forth. So she does a lot of coverage for diverse, uh, diversity and the, the intersection with climate tech and environmental justice and so forth. But this week she wrote about high-speed rail, which is just a fascinating topic to me. Um, she basically was looking at the infrastructure bill, you know, the, the trillion dollar bipartisan one that, that's still being considered now over in Congress. But, you know, just $66 billion of that, of that money over the next eight years, oh my gosh, is, is uh, for rail infrastructure and 39 for public transit. So that's like a really infinitesimal amount if you consider like all of the transportation investments that we need to make. And so she kind of tackles, um, you know, why, why rail in general and high-speed rail in particular seems to be such an issue in the United States. Uh, the fastest rail system is actually out near where I am, the Amtrak Acela Express. It goes up the Northeast Corridor um, I've taken it down to Washington, but Japan and China are like so much farther ahead as far as high-speed rail goes. And it's just, for me, when I think about um, the sort of potential for us, it, it's kind of, it seems kind of tragic that we aren't spending more time on this. Uh, it has so many implications in terms of getting people to urban or, you know, sort of business centers, economic centers much more efficiently without all the single passenger vehicles. And just, it, it just seems to be a, a very logical investment um, in my mind. And it, it, it's a shame that, that we don't spend more time thinking about it. I know California is has a lot kind of going on at any given moment, proposals and so forth, it's, it seems. Um, but what, what are your thoughts on this, Diana? Yeah, so when I was reading this story, I actually thought back to my time before going uh, full steam ahead into journalism. Um, I worked at LA County's Transportation Agency, huh. um, I did not and know I that. learned a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fun fact. Um, I learned a lot about just how hard it is to get transportation projects off of the ground. Mm -hmm. um, I definitely think that we need <laughs> to invest in high-speed rail, obviously. Um, I'm excited to see that there is a project that is underway in the Central Valley. I'm hoping that that will kind of spur some excitement in other parts of the country mm -hmm. to actually get on it. Maybe that'll prove that it's a necessity. Um, also, you mentioned Japan. So I studied abroad in Japan uh, during my undergrad and actually wrote the high speed rail. And it was the bullet train. Yeah, the bullet train. It felt so innovative at that time. That was like 2010. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's so interesting that other countries, well, the U.S. specifically, hasn't made its way to that point because the innovation is obviously there. Yeah, it comes down to, I think, just sort of our general, in the United States, our general uh, lack of interest in funding public infrastructure. I think I, I, one of the stats in here is like something like uh, just 25% of the money from from uh, for public infrastructure. I'm just scanning here. I think that was a statistic. It was a very small amount. Uh, it comes from federal funding. It's right. Mm -hmm. it, we kind of lay this on the states and we lay it on um, 
actually we give a lot of power to local municipalities. So if a local municipality could have a, a system going through it, they're kind of able to say, no, not in my backyard, which is, which seems to be the, right. the historical issue with, with projects in the United States is, you know, don't affect my turf. Uh, you know, it's not, not don't, the public interest isn't more than my interest. So it's, uh, it, I think it, it comes down to our celebration of individuality, I think, here in the United States and the thought that we should have the corporate world, I suppose, uh, investing in things and, and obviously different issues and bonds and so forth that, that are raised through votes and so forth. But yeah, it does seem a shame. Um, but I, this is a great piece. It kind of gives you perspective on... on uh, on where we probably need to go. And it, you know, the other thing I'll just say before we move, I'll let you pick the next topic in a moment, but my final thought on this one is just, it seems short-sighted that, uh, you know, countries like Japan and China are growing quickly and they're investing in these systems. And, and that's what you do when you're a fast growing economy. In the United States, I mean, after all, the train, the rail system is kind of what, what really built the, the, the economy in the early 1900s. And, um, you know, it, it expanded industrialization, it lowered the cost of transporting goods across the country. And it, it seems like we might want to think about back to that time and, um, you know, reconsider how we're, how we're thinking about it now. So what story do you want to talk about next? I want to talk about our colleague, Jesse Klein's story about the never-ending drought for California. So this the headline is, what does never-ending drought mean for California agriculture? Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like this piece was super well done. Yeah. And I mean, I'm, it's a question that I think a lot of people are thinking about if they have any interest in agriculture, because California obviously has been in a drought on and off for many, many years. Mm-hmm. I thought this was interesting because uh, some of the ways that Jesse goes into this story is kind of talking to people who are on the ground doing the work of growing almonds, growing strawberries and seeing how they're trying to adjust to this drought. Um, I thought it was really interesting um, because it seems like they're leaning on technology. They're also kind of using approaches that have been done in the Mediterranean, I think, just to make sure that their crops are able to get water because obviously they need them to grow. What were, you, what were your thoughts on this piece? Yeah, so I mean, I think for perspective, it's, it's, it's important to remember that California supplies one third of the vegetables in the United States and two thirds of the fruits and nuts. I mean, it matters for the entire country what happens to the agricultural industry in California. What I, one of the things, I totally agree with you. This is really a, a very thoughtful story that that made me think about a lot of things I hadn't been thinking about. Um, I didn't know there was a new act in um, in California that's important to to also mention. It's called the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act, passed uh, back in 2014. So this was sort of precursor and 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 predicting what was going to happen, and it's going to to change the amount of water that farmers can take out of the ground groundwater and pump up to the surface. Over the next, I think it's like uh, it phases in through twenty the next twenty years to kind of like, you know, they're going to get less and less ability to over time. Um, I loved the the focus on thinking about groundwater as a as a savings account. So like the one of the things to, to do, you know, is replenishing the supply. Now that's become and that's sort of what historically has been done. But it 
it's getting harder to do that because the rainy days aren't coming as much as, as they did in the past. So I think anything that helps, any technology or approach that helps with saving that groundwater resource. I, I loved some of the things that the fellow at uh, Driscoll's, right? So so she talked to Driscoll's, which was the berry, you know, the big berry company and Blue Diamond, which does almonds. And people probably know the almonds, but thing, things, simple things like strawberry growers are moving their pots above ground which improves water efficiency by 30% per pound of strawberry. So instead of in the fields, they're moving the way that they're planted. So like back to your box garden, <laughs> you know, you can control the water better if it's not seeping way down. Things like precision monitoring of um, the soil and to, to really understand if it needs the water. Like I, I've heard of vineyards doing this, like you, you measure the water and you only water it when it needs it. Instead of having it on a schedule, you know, it, it's really finely tuned and, and monitored with digital technology. So really important story, really. And, and, you know, I think the other question, and maybe actually I'm curious about, about you because you're there, like, have you seen the crops changing or have you heard about the crops changing out there, planting different things, right? Because that, that's also part of the equation. Yeah, it's, it's not something that I have really paid attention to, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, but I know this is something that one of the folks that Jesse talked to mentioned. Yeah. Like their people might start putting more effort into the crops that they will make more money from, for example. Yeah, like kind of stay away from the cheaper crops. I'm trying to look for the exact. Yeah, so there, you know, crop. I think the reductions in things like. Uh, crops for animal feeds. That was one of the examples. Um, so mm-hmm. alfalfa, hay, and corn, um, which, you know, you get less money for the feed t- sorts of crops, but uh, while almonds and pistachios will grow, and which is actually kind of ironic because almonds use a lot of water. They require a lot of water. So it's uh, a puzzle, isn't it? It really is. Definitely. All right, we have one more story to go. And this one is also pretty, uh, I, I, I encourage anyone who has anything to do with ESG at their company, hint, pretty much all of you, uh, to read this piece. The question posed is, are your ESG investments sustainable grade? And sustainable grade is in quotes. And it's by Antonio Vivas. He's um, he's written for us before with a, a consulting firm called Comptier. Uh, I'm probably mispronouncing the name, but the the, the thesis here is um, there's a couple things he's looking at. One is just sort of something that we've talked about before and I think is, is becoming more widely known in that it's that many of the, the funds that, that are labeling themselves as ESG funds, in other words, somehow focused on environmental, social, and governance issues and, and sort of featuring stocks that do a better job on those, like that's the implication by that label. Many of them are include stocks that you wouldn't necessarily put in in one of those portfolios. Like as and there's a couple examples in here. You know, one of the ones that really jumped out at me was Philip Morris. You know, they're they're absolutely doing some pretty wonderful things when it comes to changing their farmer farming practices and and helping the people that work for them and and in, in their supply chain get a better chance. But, uh, and the question's asked, is that enough to compensate for the health uh, implications of tobacco? If you have a, a high, uh, let, 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 I'll, I'll break it down for you. If you have a, a responsible farming practice, which is an E, right, an environmental, plus good employee benefits, an S, 
plus maybe good board diversity, a G, is that enough to overbalance a bad S in terms of health, you know, and so forth. So that that was like one of those examples that really kind of made me understand what was going on here. And there's some others that are cited, including JBS, which is the largest meat processor in the world. They're doing, again, they have some great, great things they're planning in terms of their supply chain, but they've got a lot of challenges as far as um, the past uh, deforestation, well, past and current deforestation um, practices and also water pollution, um, you know, just like the list goes on. So, but yet some of these companies are in some of these ESG portfolios. So that's the background. The thing that he is proposing is that um, there is a, a rating system. It's, it's the, the one that most credit agencies, credit risk use for stocks. It's called investment grade. So when someone says it's an invest, they, they, when, when a stock or, or some other issue is rated, an instrument is rated investment grade, it, it, it denotes a certain thing to, to the investors that are going to buy or trade in that, in that financial instrument. He is suggesting that there be a sustainable grade, a sustainable risk, essentially, system as well. So that's sort of the thesis here. Wonder, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna shut up here and let you talk a moment, Diana. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I just don't. I don't spend a whole lot of time thinking about financial issues, and this one was like, wow, you know, like this is important. Yeah, similar to you, I don't spend a lot of time thinking about <laughs> the investment kind of piece around uh, sustainability, but I feel like this piece actually really helped me understand mm -hmm. ESG better. Yeah. Um, and so if that's something you want to understand better, listener, I, I suggest reading this piece along with like kind of proposing this sustainable grade. I feel like he just does a really good job of explaining how you can be rated differently on E, S, and G, and a couple of questions that uh, he summarized the problem with as, um, he's what is E, what is S, what is G, and then what is ESG, and how much contribution or goodness should each bring, um, and what are the trade-offs um, yeah. that should be accepted with each of those components. I just felt like this to me was kind of an explainer and also a proposal for how we could be doing things better. And as I was reading the piece, I like the thought in my head was like ESG washing, like, is that a thing? Um, and I feel like toward the end of the piece, uh, I think greenwashing is just on my mind because of a story I'm working on. But yeah, I think that it would be really great for everyone to get on the same page around ESG um, because Obviously, greenwashing is a thing, and I think, yeah, it can't go unchecked, as yeah. he notes in the piece. Yeah, and just to, and that, y y you're right, this is, is a two-part two kind of thing. One is it's a great explainer of, like, helping you understand that there are trade-offs or that there could be, you know, a, a, an interesting weighting to a particular ESG issue. The other, his specific proposal, which is kind of, you know, it's just, by the way, it's just a proposal, but it's, it's a really fascinating one at that, but is uh, that you you would have a, a, a security that that would have a rating calculated over say 10 rating agents because there's, there's a lot of rating agencies now that are focusing on as we know as uh, ESG issues and sustainable finance so he's suggesting that you you take this you 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 have an average rating 
that that um, if someone's saying, say someone's trying to pr promote themselves as a great social company, that they would have to have a rating of no less than a certain amount in that area among these raters. And they also should have a rating of no less than like, in his book, what he's suggesting, seven over 10, like all overall across, across them, right? Like, so, so in other words, seven, I think, actually, I think I've just got it backwards. Seven out of 10 on each of the individuals and then uh, sort of an average over the, the, over them. So, you know, it's just a, it's a fascinating topic. Uh, one that I think we all need to get a better sense on. We can't rely on the regulators. That's, you know, one of the points he makes. Um, we, we need to have a sort of private sector response. You know, people step up here in the private sector among the ratings agencies, maybe also a, a uh, independent mechanism, some, something like the International Capital Markets Association, sort of step in. They were the ones that developed this, the green green bond principles, uh, the sustainability long linked bond principles. So he's suggesting that maybe someone like them step in and help define this system. So it's a it's a interesting thesis and proposal. The Shareholder Advocacy Group, As You Sow, regularly publishes research intended to help investors understand how publicly held companies are contributing to or hindering the just transition to a clean economy. Earlier this month, the organization updated its racial justice scorecard, which rates the S&P 500 to include metrics related to how well companies perform on environmental justice matters. The results are pretty sobering. Only 27 companies actually acknowledged a connection between their business practices and environmental justice issues. Joining me to dig into the research is Olivia Knight, Racial Justice Initiative Manager for As You Sow. Hello, Olivia. Hello, thank you for having me today. Let's start with some context. How long has As You Sow been publishing the Racial Justice Scorecard and what prompted the addition of the environmental justice metrics? So As You so started the Racial Justice Initiative in June of 2020, right after George Floyd's murder. Mm -hmm. And we started immediately collecting data on the racial justice statements that companies were making following that. And we realized that a lot of companies were making these very bold statements of racial equity, but very few were actually following up with concrete actions. So after looking at statements, we began to look at corporate policies and practices related to racial justice, and that led to us releasing the first part of the scorecard, the S&P 250, in November of 2020. And then we followed it up with releasing the first round of the S&P 500 in early March of this year. And in early March, the feedback that we got when we released it from advocacy groups and other green organizations was that we weren't looking at the full picture of what racial justice is. The top and the bottom 10, there were some companies in the top 10 that maybe shouldn't have been there because of their track record on environmental justice issues. And as you so, we are an environmental nonprofit. We do focus many of our programs on environmental and climate actions. And so we knew that we had to find a way to incorporate that data, that information, and that framework into our racial justice work. And so we actively started incorporating an environmental justice framework into our research process, a multidisciplinary lens that looks at 
intersectional issues. So not just how a company is doing on their DEI work, but also what are they doing for communities of color or to communities of color that actually harms people in an everyday scope. What specifically does the scorecard assess? So our scorecard is made up of two general components. 20% of the company's overall score is racial justice statement language. So we looked at that initial 2020 statement and then any follow-up statements that were made, looked for key terms, graded the company on those. Then 80% of the overall score looks at corporate policies and practices. So we're focused on DEI disclosure, racial justice community engagement, racial justice donations, hate speech, and then our new components, which are, of course, environmental justice focused on environmental racism. So let's talk results. Who's at the bottom of the list and why? At the bottom of our list, we have a lot of energy and utilities companies, which is perhaps not a surprise to most. Um, they're down there because of their blatant disregard for communities of color and their overall business practices that are innately harmful to BIPOC communities. So we've got Exxon coming in dead last at negative 23%. Um, part of that is due to their Superfund sites in Texas, their actions in Beaumont, Texas, related to leaking carcinogens into predominantly African-American communities. Um, we've also got companies like Valero and O'Reilly's that just didn't show up last year for racial justice. They didn't make an initial statement. And so back in March, when we initially released this, a lot of these companies already had zeros on our scorecard. But then when we added the environmental justice component, it just bumped them down even further to show that not only are they not being proactive on racial justice, but they're actually doing harm. So that's what that negative score means. It's they're doing harm. They're doing harm. Exactly. Doing harm. And that's one of the reasons that we felt it was necessary to incorporate a negative scoring system for this environmental justice pillar, because we needed to start tracking what harm these companies are actually doing. What are they really putting out there into the world? Let's talk about the positive. <laughs> if there is stuff here, uh, what, what are the top performing companies doing right? So let's talk about some of the ones that are, that are on the other end of the spectrum. Why are they there? Yeah, so for first place tied are Microsoft and CVS Health at 60%. So by no means is that 100%. Um, our racial justice scorecards show overall that there is a lot of work to do on this issue and that companies need to be actively engaged in making a change and that they need to continue making a change in years to come. But I can tell you that the companies that scored in the top 10 disclose. So we are really looking for DEI disclosure focused on hiring, retention, recruitment, promotion rates of people of color within the company to see how a company is really doing internally on issues of racial justice and if they're disclosing information broken down by race. And so CBS and Microsoft have both made commitments to disclose information in the future if they're not already doing so. And that's really what's setting them apart from the rest of the pack. 
As for environmental justice, you'll see a lot of these companies that maybe aren't in a sector where people normally associate environmental justice with companies like this. So uh, these companies may have scored neutral on many of the environmental justice components, meaning that we couldn't prove one way or another that they're actively doing harm. But what we would like to see with this scorecard and this new methodology is that all companies are taking a look at their environmental justice practices and the connection to the movement. And all companies are really critically thinking about how their business practices on a daily basis harm or benefit people of color. Do you think that the average company understands exactly what this means? Uh, you know, I mean, one of the things that I've found in my own interactions with the corporate sustainability community is that many of them aren't connecting the dots yet between their strategy and this issue. Is that is that what's going on here? Is Are we at a period of time where people are, are mainly doing the reflection and sort of trying to understand what's going on? Or, or you know, is this... Is this a matter of just they don't know yet or or is it active, you know, active harm in the case of like an, an ExxonMobil or something like that? I think it's a combination. And that's very interesting that you're seeing that, too, because as we start this work at As You So, we are also seeing those questions come up as we go into corporate meetings. Why is environmental justice now a component of your racial justice scorecard? What does this mean? What is this movement? What is this framework? What's environmental racism? We're getting all of those questions, just like last year when we started going into corporate meetings, we were getting the question of what is anti-racism and what does that mean for my business practice? We're getting that quite often. So it is new, it is perhaps new to the corporate language, although it shouldn't be. And with the companies like Exxon in the energy and utilities sector, that have been harming BIPOC communities for many, many years. They are familiar with environmental justice and they know that it's a problem in their business model. But at this point, it's baked in. They know that they're going to get hit with environmental fines and violations every year. And so it's built into their budget. And that's what we want to wake these companies up to is that it's no longer acceptable to have business as usual when it actively harms people. And companies, even that are not in the utility or energy sector, have to start making those connections, have to do a little bit of extra research and have to start focusing on racial justice as an encompassing issue, an intersectional issue that looks at climate impact, that looks at waste impact, that looks at educational impacts and really show up for people of color in America. So how often are you going to perform this assessment? As of right now, um, as I mentioned earlier in the podcast, we've already done three reports so far, and we plan to expand to the Russell 1000 by mid-November. So we are chugging right along with this. Um, we will be releasing a back-end component to our S&P 500 data viz tool, which will allow companies to be proactive. And if they are curious about their scores or think that our researchers may have missed something, they can go into the back-end and submit information to the racial justice team, which we can then review and either update the score or send, send a note back and say that this doesn't meet our criteria. 
So it will be an ongoing update. We're thinking probably quarterly for this. And then once every year, we'll do a large scale update to get all of these companies, the new information in the scorecard and get everyone back to basics, really get companies to know that this scorecard is not going away. We are going to continue monitoring progress for the foreseeable future. One last question, Olivia. What can companies do to improve their performance, right? So they're going to go in and they're going to add updates, you know, maybe you didn't you didn't pick up something the first time. Mm-hmm. But what can they do actively to to get to a better place? Well, I would start by saying that if they have any questions on their score, they should reach out to me and the Racial Justice Initiative and we can work through each company's unique situation to get a better score. That being said, generically, um, we encourage companies to disclose. We want to see as much information as possible broken down by race. We also want companies to start making that connection between their business practices and the environmental justice movement. And once we start with these very basic elements of disclosure and transparency and actively educating a company into a better way of doing business, then I think we'll see a lot of scores rise. Well, thank you, Olivia, for dropping by to Green Biz 350. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. You just heard from Olivia Knight, Racial Justice Initiative Manager for As You Sow. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. Go to greenbiz.com forward slash 350 for our weekly episode rundowns. Hit us up by email at the address 350 at greenbiz.com. We always love to hear from you. Hey, thanks to Deanna Anderson for stepping in to co-host. And I'll be back next week with the punny Joel McCower. Until next time, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Heather Clancy. Take care and be well. This episode is sponsored by Indigo Ag which enables companies to attain their sustainability goals by incentivizing farmers to be climate heroes. Carbon by Indigo addresses climate change while supporting farmers and communities. Learn more at indigoag.com forward slash greenbiz.